standing for the reading of God's word tonight as we continue our way through the prophet of Hosea. And we will begin reading in the last verse of Hosea chapter 11, which I believe really should have been a part of chapter 12, as we will see tonight. Uh, As you know, the verses and chapters are not inspired. They were added later. And so at times we can take odds with how they enumerated things, but uh, nevertheless we are thankful for the verses and chapters in order to help us find in Scripture where we are. But we will begin reading in chapter 11, verse 12, and then read into chapter 12 through verse 8. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind, pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel. And in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with an angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the day of the appointed feast. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. If I said the apple doesn't fall far from the tree... Or he's a chip off the old block. Or like father, like son. Or following in his father's footsteps. You know what I mean and what I'm conveying. These are sayings or colloquialisms that children take after their parents. How they look, how they speak, how they act, their mannerisms. One of our recent funerals. I was amused at one of the sons, even though I had never met him before, I knew that that was the son of the father in whom we were having the funeral for, because he looked so much like his father and he, in fact, spoke like him and had similar mannerisms. And I'm sure you've had similar situations as well, where you've seen someone that you have never met before, and yet you say, you must be so-and-so's son or daughter, because there's such a striking family resemblance. And children usually never like hearing those things. They always want to be their own people, but they can't escape from it. None of us can. We reflect our parents in our upbringing. And this can be a good thing. We can inherit good traits, from our parents, or we can inherit traits that are not so good. And what we see in 
Hosea chapter 12 is that Israel is following their fathers in not such a good trait. And the father specifically that is referred to here is Jacob. You remember Jacob was a deceiver, a supplanter. And we see that Israel does the same. Just as Jacob tried to deceive and to manipulate his way through life, so too does Israel in Hosea's day. That is, until Jacob comes face to face with God. Not once, but twice. And so whereas Israel can learn from their forefathers on what not to do, they also must learn what to do. And that is exactly what they are able to learn from Jacob, both what not to do as well as what to do, especially when coming before a holy God. Because the lessons from the past, as you know, are not just for the past or not just in the past, but are for the present. And the same goes for us as well. The Lord has written the scriptures, has written the story of redemption, not just so that we would know them as stories or things that went on a long time ago, but we are to know the stories, we are to read the stories, we are to learn from the stories, because so much of those stories are weaved into our story, our redemption as well. And so tonight we will see Two points, like father, like son, and then second, like father, but not like son. First, like father, like son. We see in verse 2, it says that the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. I remember that Israel and Judah are often called Jacob because Jacob's name, if you remember, was changed to Israel. The nation of Israel and the name Jacob are used interchangeably because Jacob was the patriarch of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Israel or Judah can be referred to as Jacob. But Hosea here in verse 2 uses them, as I said, interchangeably. And it's almost hard to know, is Hosea talking about the individual, Jacob, or is he talking about the nation of Israel, or that of Judah? Because in verse 3, you see that he goes into the details of Jacob's life. Do you see that kind of, that sleight of hand there, where he says, I have an indictment against Judah, and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. And then in verse 3, it goes into speaking specifically about Jacob's life, giving a biography of the father, Jacob. And like I said, I think this is done by Hosea intentionally. It's almost like a, a sleight of hand. Begin with the nation and then begin talking about Israel, and then you're not sure, is he talking about the in individual or the nation itself? really is talking about both because they model each other. They resemble one another. Hosea looks to Jacob's past and in so doing looks at Israel. 
and so that the people of God are reminded of how God dealt in the past as well as how God will deal in the present. And you probably remember a lot of the history of Jacob in Genesis, but tonight I want us to take a little history lesson and point out some of the highlights or perhaps you might want to say low lights, depending on how you look of it, look at it, of Jacob's life. And we start with his birth. Jacob was the son of Isaac and Rebekah, but he was not alone. He was a twin, if you remember. It was Jacob and Esau. In fact, Esau was the one that was born first. But Jacob was the chosen one, the chosen son. And you remember that was something that was different because it's always the firstborn that is the chosen one, that is the blessed one. But once again, we see that twist, that change. In fact, this was told to Rebekah even before Jacob and Esau were born. It was said that the boys were wrestling, fighting already in the womb, which seems pretty typical of boys. Uh, if you have any boys in your home, you know that they are, uh, have a tendency to, to wrestle and to, to fight, and we see that this was already taking place in the womb between these twin boys, Jacob and Esau, but it was of concern to Rebekah, and in fact, such concern that she inquires of the Lord, and she receives this word from the Lord himself, two nations are in your womb, two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. In other words, Rebecca here has a promise, a promise given to the younger, that he, even though is younger, will be stronger, and that the older will actually serve the younger. We read of this again in Romans chapter 9, that this was actually the purpose of election of God's eternal decrees that were made known to Rebekah. In other words, this is pretty sure. It is fixed even from all eternity. And yet, it's interesting as we read Jacob's life is that he did not look to that promise. He did not look to that eternal decree that was foretold or that promise that was given to him. Rather, what we see of Jacob was that he was a conniver, a manipulator, a deceiver. And there is an indication of this even at his birth. If you see here in verse 3, Hosea says, In the womb he took his brother by the heel. He literally came out grasping the heel of his brother. And you might say, well, so, why is that so important? Well, it's a picture that Jacob was going to supplant or usurp his brother. But how was he going to do it? Well, in a sense, he was going to do it not, as I said, relying upon God's promise, but by his own doing, by his own strength, by his own works, by his own strivings, or at least that's what he thinks. This is the way that this is going to be accomplished. And so, just like in his birth, he was grabbing his 
brothers heal, it demonstrates already at the earliest of age that he was a striver. He was one that was going to try to do this, but do it by his own way. Jacob believed that it was going to be by his own intellect, by his own cunningness, by his own strength, by his own work ethic, that he was going to get what he needed to get out of this life. And in a sense, Jacob was perhaps the first self-made man. We use that term, do we not, in our culture? The self-made man, the self-starter, as they're called, the entrepreneur, the trailblazer. And we admire such people. We, we put such people up on pedestals as, as people that are to be admired and modeled after. And there's something to be said, no doubt, of hard work. It's part of being made in the image of God, part of being creative and, and being uh, using your mind and, and, and using the things that the Lord has given you to perhaps blaze a trail that has never been blazed. And, and we shouldn't uh, in any way mock or disparage that type of attitude or that outlook. But the problem is that oftentimes that attitude can very easily turn into pridefulness, right? And even idolatry. I remember once watching a TV show of a man that was quite successful and quite wealthy. And outside of his home, he had a statue. And half of the statue was unformed rock or unformed marble. And coming out of the top part of that unformed rock was the, a man, but it was only a man from his torso up. And that man that was coming out of that unformed rock, had a hammer and a chisel in his hand. And the hammer was raised and the chisel was down as if he was chiseling himself out of the rock. In essence, the statue was trying to portray that this man was making himself. And in fact, I think the statue was called the self-made man. Well, that's foolishness. That's wickedness. That is pride. For it's only in the Lord that we live and move and have our being. Everything that we quote-unquote accomplish in this life is by the blessing of, of God. It's not by the work of our hands. And therefore, we're to give thanks to God at all times and not to give thanks to us and the things that we can do and the things that we can accomplish. Yet in a way, that was Jacob. He was making a way for himself. Remember how he gained the blessing from his father, Isaac, the birthright. It wasn't by being patient. It wasn't waiting for his time. It wasn't believing in God or his promises. No, it was by deceit. It was by manipulation. He, along with his mother and not quite sure why his mother would help him in this. He, she should have rebuked him and not helped him, but nevertheless, she did. Jacob deceives his blind father, Isaac, by dressing up like Esau, preparing food that only 
Esau would have prepared, even saying that he was Esau himself. And so we see these lies and lies and more lies, and that was Jacob. He thought he would be blessed by the work of his hands, even if that meant doing that which was unlawful and against the commands of the Lord. He was a self-made man. And yet look at what we read about Israel and Judah in verse 12 of chapter 11. Ephraim has surrounded me with, what is it? With lies. And the house of Israel with deceit. Just like Jacob, or in the same manner as Jacob. They were lying and they were deceiving goes on to say, Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. And that's something that's difficult to translate, to quite understand. Because Judah, even though they were better than Israel, Judah was not the bastion of what was right and true. Because as we see in verse 2, they are a part of the indictment that is given here in this chapter. But at least they were worshiping rightly. They were worshiping in accordance with God and his ways and his commandments. They were worshiping at the temple that the Lord had established in Jerusalem, but not Israel, or not Ephraim. Notice what it says about Ephraim in verse 1. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. It's a nice way of saying they're as stable as the wind. Or as Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4, they're tossed to and fro with every wind and wave of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. It was as beneficial to them as chasing after the wind. You remember what the author of Ecclesiastes says. That chasing after the wind is part of that vanity. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That's essentially what Hosea is saying here is that they're doing a lot. They are chasing, they are running, they are working hard, but they are accomplishing absolutely nothing. There's a lot of striving, a lot of doing, but it (coughs) is leading to nothing. And what is it that they were doing? Well, as it says there at the end of verse 1, they are multiplying falsehoods and violence. They're making a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. In other words, they are aligning themselves not with God, but with the nations, and making deals with the nations and acting like the surrounding area instead of being an example, being a witness, being a light to them. Why were they doing that? Well, they're thinking that this is the way that they're going to make themselves safe. This is the way that they're going to make themselves prosperous. It's going to be through their own industrious labor, through their good negotiations with the nations around that they will be provided for. And they're doing so at any cost, even through sinful means, as it says here, they multiply falsehood and violence. They're doing this all by crook and by hook, as they say, or by hook or by crook. And yet, isn't that astounding? They are the chosen people of God. They are God's promised people. 
people that God has entered into a covenant with, do they really need falsehoods and manipulation and false covenants and false treaties with foreign nations in order to be blessed? No, God was the source of their blessing. But they had turned from that source to trying to provide it (coughs) on their own. They were not trusting the means by which God had promised that he would use. They were not being faithful to his ways, to the right worship, to the proper honor of God. In other words, they were not walking humbly before their God. Rather, they were trying to achieve blessing by the works of their hands. Does that sound familiar? Yes, it's almost identical with Jacob. And I think we need to pause there and make some practical applications. Because it would be so easy for us to say, oh yeah, I can see how Jacob was doing that and how Israel was doing that. That is really bad. They shouldn't do that. But think about how easy it is for us to fall into that same mindset. To think if, well, if I tell the whole truth in this job or in this deal, maybe I won't make that sale that I really need. Or perhaps if I slightly fudge the numbers, you know, who's it going to really hurt in the end? Or if I cheat a little bit on this or on that, as long as I grasp the, the main concepts and, 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 and don't deceive on those, you know, what about these minor details? Wow, they're just white lies, as they say. Or this person that I'm dating may not be a Christian, or I may not marry according to the commands of God, but this might be my only chance to ever get married. Or, you know, I'm not going to give my tithes and offerings this week because I got that debt to pay off, or I need to save for this, or I need to save for my retirement. In so many ways, we do the exact same thing. We doubt the promises of God or think it's all upon us. And yet, we never pause and think, no, I need to be faithful to the Lord. That is of first and foremost my priority. I can trust Him because He's told me to trust Him in this. Of course, we have responsibilities that we are to do and be a part of, but our responsibility is never to go beyond that which is made clear to us by Scripture. We're to believe in Him, to believe in His promises. My ethics teacher, professor in seminary used to say, you never have the right to do wrong, and you never can give the right for others to do wrong. And he would say, it's because it's not our prerogative. We must live under the commandments of the king. And we don't have the right to set our own. And so you never have the right to do wrong, nor can you give the right for others to do wrong. Well, in this way, we must learn from this poor example of our forefathers and trying to strive and get what they could and go their own ways, thinking that they would be blessed 
as a result of this. And in many ways, they were blessed, as it says down there in verse 8. Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. And yet they tried to cover, as it says, their sin or their iniquity. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. But it goes on to say in verse 9, I am the Lord your God, the one who sees all things, the one who knows you're not fooling anyone, especially the Lord. Even though you may be prospering in a sense, don't think that that prosperity is getting you anywhere in the grand sense, in the grand scheme of things. And this is something that Jacob eventually learns, and that's what we see in our second point then, like father, not like son. As we go back to Jacob's story, if you remember, perhaps it's been a time since you've read these stories, there's two times that he has an encounter with the Lord. Both, interestingly enough, when he is in the midst of his striving, in the midst of his laboring on his own behalf. The first is when he's on the run from Esau, when he's deceived Esau from his birthright and he is running away from him because he knows that Esau is going to try to kill him. And in fact, Jacob is so exhausted that he lays down to sleep. He takes a pillow of a rock and he goes and falls fast asleep. And it's there in that place that the heavens are opened up. And there is a stairway to heaven with angels ascending and descending. And what does God reveal to him? He reveals the promise, the covenant promise. In fact, it says there in Genesis 28, God says to him, I am the Lord God, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. This land in which you lie will be given to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be as the dust of the earth. Through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Does that promise sound familiar? It ought to. It was the promise that was given to Abraham and then to Isaac. And now it's the promise that is given to Jacob. And I think it's a simple reminder to Jacob, why are you striving? Cease from your labors. Be at rest. Be still and believe that I am God. And yet, Seemingly, Jacob still does not understand. He still does not learn. He needs a second time for the Lord to come to him. And we can be thankful for second chances, can't we? Because Jacob's not the only one that needs reminders again and again. We are such people as well, but we have the Lord that comes to Jacob again as he is fleeing, this time fleeing his father-in-law, Laban. The Lord has blessed Jacob. He's given him flocks and herds, and he's given him two wives. Remember the sisters, Leah and Rachel, and many children. The Lord has blessed him. And yet, Jacob, in many ways, thinks that it's by his own hand. It's by his own conniving of his father Laban that he has gotten and received what he has received. And as a result, he's on the run just as he was with Esau. And he has nowhere to go but to head towards home. But again, he knows who's at home. Esau, 
And as a result, Jacob is worried. And so what does Jacob do? Well, Jacob does what Jacob does best. He comes up with a plan. He says, I will pacify my brother with giving him gifts. In fact, three waves of gifts. So much so that Esau will be overwhelmed with gifts. And therefore, he'll have to accept me. Again, not trusting God, not believing in his promises, thinking that it's going to be by his own hands. Yet before this meeting with his brother Esau, in the midst of his striving, he once again encounters the Lord. And this time wrestles with the Lord. I think he is wrestling with the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And it's apt picture, isn't it? Of the wrestling that he is wrestling, in a sense, with God. Because that's essentially what he had been doing all of his life. He was a fighter. And in fact, he fights so hard that the Lord must cripple him in order for Jacob to let him go. And there, Jacob's name is changed to Israel, which literally means he strives with God. But it's there at that meeting, the Lord seemingly breaks through. I don't know if it was Jacob's conversion, but no doubt it was an illumination that in the Lord, he is blessed. Because Jacob will not let the Lord go until this one blesses him. In fact, he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. But ironically, as we have already said, he was already blessed. He was chosen from birth. Yet he did not trust the Lord for his blessing. The one that he already had. And this is why, again, in Romans chapter 9, it talks about Jacob and Esau. When it says, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that the purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. I think that phrase, not by works, but by him who calls, is not referring to Esau, but it's referring to Jacob. Because Jacob was believing that it was by his works that he was going to receive this blessing. But I think it's here as he wrestles with the Lord that it's not by his works both his works that were good or his works even that were bad. That it wasn't his good works that was going to secure his blessing. It wasn't his bad works that was going to cancel the blessing. It's not until he wrestles with the Lord that he ceases from his strivings. And so it says there, finally, in verse 3, end of verse 3 of Hosea 12, and in his manhood he strove with God, he strove with the angel and prevailed, and then he wept, sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. And what it refers to there, he met with God at Bethel, is referring to Genesis 35, where Jacob goes back to Bethel, first place that he met with God when he was on the run from Esau 
And there we read this beautiful story of Jacob taking all of his idols, all of his household idols, and burying them in the ground, ridding himself of them to seemingly serve God alone. And there, finally, we see Jacob not as a bad role model, but as a good one. He did what was right. He stopped striving and he believed. He believed God and received the blessing. And God blesses him. That's why it says he wept and sought his favor. He returned to the Lord. And that's why Jacob is being used here as a model to Israel, saying, You are acting like your father, Jacob, in the things that you have done wrong. Now act like your father, Jacob in the way that he turned to the Lord and how he repented. Cease from your striving and believe. As it says in verse 6, So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. You hear the command of Hosea. You hear the final part of this saying, Follow your father. You followed him in his sin. Now follow him in your repentance and return to the Lord. Brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ, do we need any more word than this? Do we strive by our own good works to be pleasing to God or perhaps pleasing to the world? Is your self-worth wrapped up in your performance in that what you do or don't do. Thinking that God is pleased by it or not pleased by it. That we are either smug and self-confident in ourselves or we despair and wonder, am I truly good enough to be accepted by God? No, I think we need to be reminded by these passages. We are blessed. We are chosen. We are the children of God. Not because of our striving. Not because of our doings, but because of Christ and by his work and by that which he has done. It's the work and doings of the Lord Jesus Christ by his grace and by his grace alone that we are called. All that Jacob did or did not do, all that Israel did or did not do, could not ultimately revoke the promise. And neither can we. You are never so good that you aren't in constant need of the grace of God. Likewise, you are never so bad that you are outside of the reach of that same grace. And it's amazing grace from beginning to end. And so this story of redemption, the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and of Israel and us too, is the story of God's grace given to us even though we do not deserve the least of it. But this night we are called to rest once again in the finished and accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive all the blessings that Christ would give to you. If you are in sin this night, return to God and repent of those sins. If you are striving in despair because you know or think that you are not good enough or acceptable in God's sight, return to God and be reminded that you are right and pleasing in God, not because of you, but because of Christ, his beloved son.
This is the true and unadulterated gospel. The gospel of grace that is given to sinners, the likes of us. And it's the amazing glory of God in redemption. And that's why I think it's fitting tonight that we would close with Paul's words at the end of Romans chapter 11 as he has laid out the mystery of salvation made known to not only the Jews but to the Gentiles. He says this, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. To that we add our hearty amen. Join me in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of the past. But Lord, we know that that story very much comes alive as we see so many sinful tendencies that are in our own hearts and in our own lives and things that we think by our own striving or by our doing we will be made pleasing or right. Lord, may we be reminded that it is through your promise, through your covenant promise, made perfect and complete in the Lord Jesus Christ that we have all that we stand in need of. Lord, may we rest in that gospel promise again this day, this night, and this week. Lord, we're thankful for your Son, and through him we are blessed. Truly our cup overflows, and we praise you for it. In Christ Jesus, our Savior's name, amen.